Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my interim co-host, Claire Biddles. Hello. So this week we watched Stanley Kubrick's acclaimed erotic psychodrama, Eyes Wide Shut, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as Bill and Alice Hartford, a married couple in 1990s New York. After Alice reveals that she fantasized about having an affair, Bill embarks on a night of sexual experimentation. Um, So for listeners who have not tuned in for a few episodes, you have definitely noticed that I am not joined by Morgan this week. We discussed this on kind of a little mini episode recently, but basically Morgan is taking some time off. She has long COVID. She's not able to record regular weekly episodes at the moment. So you'll still be able to find her on the Patreon-only podcasts. But for a few months... We are trying a new format where I will be joined by two interim hosts, one of whom is the comedian Stefan Allen, who has recorded our new episode on Jurassic Park with me, and uh, also Claire Biddles, um, the wonderful Claire, good friend of mine, music critic and film expert, and generally just patron of the arts. Hello, Claire. Patron of the arts. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) And I just thought this would be such a good movie to discuss with you because you love celebs and celeb culture and like sex yes. movies and yes it's, it's just it's so fun so and um yeah what's your like backstory with this film when did you first see it or this is one of my favorite films and I've seen it I was watching it earlier today and I was thinking that I've probably seen it over 20 times, 20 or 30 <laughs> times. Uh, I watch it every Christmas and then I probably watch it like in the year as well. But I think the first time I watched it was probably, I was probably a teenager. This came out when I was like 12, so I definitely didn't watch it when it came out. But I watched it when I was, I will have watched it when I was a teenager for the first time because I kind of went through a teenage Stanley Kubrick obsession, which kind of continues to this day. Love that for you. Love that for you. (laughs) I think just because the, the critical consensus on it has always been so like up and down and kind of like mixed still now I think even though it's a bit more uh, sort of reclaimed now it was always one that I kind of put off after I'd seen you know Full Metal Jacket and Clockwork Orange and The Shining and stuff like that stuff that's a bit more undoubted classic status but when I watched it I was like absolutely hooked and it immediately was my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've seen several Kubrick movies, obviously, and I'm sort of generally familiar with him as a concept, but I feel like you're going to be the true expert this week. (laughs) I came into this movie with really no expectations. I kind of knew it had this famous masked orgy scene, which has been (laughs) referenced and parodied and talked about for years. But otherwise, I was just like, I know this is a film that has Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman when they were still married, which is a very juicy concept. And otherwise, just going into it, I was like, this movie is much less sexy than I was expecting and much less <laughs> scandalous, which I think is yes. probably quite a normie reaction to it. But like, it really was, I was like, this is not, we, we will get into all the orgy stuff later. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of fascinating experience. And I obviously really loved it. Not enough to watch it 20 more times, but, but a great movie, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, just to kind of give some general backstory on Kubrick, um, American filmmaker, started as a photographer, then started making short films in the 50s when he was in his 30s. Basically from 1960 onwards, he had this continual uninterrupted run of mega 
important movies. So Spartacus in 1960, followed by Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and then Eyes Wide Shut. And he died very shortly after making this film. Or indeed, while still in the process of finalising it, because he was kind of known for being a perfectionist who was kept working on things right up until release. And this kind of, you know, he, he died after making a cut that some people argue is not the final cut he would have completed it with. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. The I think the law and mythology that the status of the film has taken on, I guess because of the time, things weren't as closely monitored as they would have been now. So there's still some kind of like mystery about was it finished? There's For many years, there was like a rumour that there was like a 20 minutes extra that wasn't put in the final cut and that he wasn't happy with it and then he thought it was the best film he'd ever made and it's it's like very interesting how that has taken on its own kind of mythology I think especially considering that the film is kind of about kind of the film has its own internal mythology as well. It's a lot of ambiguity going on there yeah I was like really intrigued to see all these conflicting accounts on yeah to what extent he'd finished it um also as you pointed out to me in our little planning document, this movie took fucking ages to film. Honestly, <laughs> like just they kind of got persuaded Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman to just take a break out of at that point the peak of their careers as A-list stars mm-hmm. and just spend eighteen months filming this movie in fake New York that he had built in England. <laughs> it's so wild, <laughs> but yeah, I think it still is the longest continual shoot of a film. But like that's a kind of that's the a reflection of his perfectionism and how many takes he would do and how just finicky he was about every single aspect of it. But the period that the film was shot in also has its own mythology and rumors about like whether Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were having marriage like couples therapy during it and like all this stuff that kind of was rumored to have happened at the time, but. It's also just funny because it is just because he's a, such a perfectionist and just made them do so many takes. <laughs> the whole Tom Nicole thing is so old Hollywood because I literally can't think yeah. of... Like, our equivalent is like Ben Affleck and Anna Armas making Deep Water. It's like, <laughs> we have no equivalent. There are no like A-list celebrity couples who are making movies of this calibre together, you know. They got married in 1990 and then divorced in 2001. So basically this was coming out at the the tail end of their marriage, Mm -hmm. at which point there was so much scrutiny. And obviously we were both like too young to be following this live at at that point. But (laughs) the, the lore and backstory of Tom Cruise's love life is rich and quite frankly, terrifying. So yes. Like to me, the Nic- the famous pictures of Nicole Kidman when she gets a divorce. Oh my god! Like, yes, that that to me is like the sequel of Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, it's like the epilogue. Google them if you have never seen these photos. Just Google. I imagine if you just Google Nicole Kidman divorce photos, these is pictures oh, of her just looking so free and unpolished and <laughs> joyful. It's always so fascinating that she kind of still talks about Tom Cruise in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. always like you can really these people are truly unknowable because yeah Scientology the children they have <laughs> together very it's a lot I assume she's been to a lot of therapy over the past few years and also is married very happily to the new guy 
Yeah, I'm happy for it. One one of my uh, notes while watching the film was just, I believe Nicole, Kid- like when there's the bit where they're smoking weed, it was like, one of my notes is just, I believe Nicole Kidman currently smokes weed. Yes. Like, <laughs> with, like, definitely didn't with Tom Cruise, but like now she's married to like the laid back Australian lesbian man. Yeah. They just spend all day together flat ironing each other's hair, hanging yeah. out in their cool mansion. Taking Instagram pictures of each other and being obsessed with each other. I, I'm very good for her about Nicole Kidman currently. I don't think Tom Cruise could smoke weed because like he's so yeah, no. tightly wound. <laughs> if you unwound it, something horrible would happen it would be like a neutron (laughs) star like imploding or something i don't even know but yeah on the topic of this film before we start talking about the the meat and potatoes of what happens in Mm -hmm. this film it's based on a novel published in 1926 by arthur schnitzler set in vienna and kubrick first read this in 1968 and was just really into the idea of adapting it for decades and decades so he clearly was really interested in it and although i've not read the book have you read the book no i haven't um, so we've not read the book, but it sounds like the kind of there's a similar plot, but it's obviously set in 1920s Vienna rather than present day at this point, like 90s New York. And it also has a lot of kind of carnival Venetian mask imagery because this movie is set at Christmas, but it does have this famous masked sequence, which is very kind of evocative of that late 19th, early 20th century European aristocratic kind of bacchanal vibes. But yeah, like to kind of go a bit more into the plot, do you want to kind of give like a summary of the of what happens in the first half, first section of this movie for viewers who have not yet watched the movie? Okay, cool. Yeah, I will try my best <laughs> to remember things in the correct sequence because this is the thing about this film as well. Like I have watched it famously 20 to 30 times, but I can never remember which bits come after which because it kind of all... It's all very, con- the action is yeah. very continuous. I think that's fine because it's like, it reflects the dreamlike status of the yeah. narrative, Claire. <laughs> it's purposeful. <laughs> so we meet Tom and Nicole as Bill and Alice Hartford. First of all, getting ready for a party. Um, it's Christmas and they're going to a Christmas party in a very kind of posh, Upper East Side, rarefied mansion. The party is thrown by Sidney Pollock, who is, it's suggested it is upper echelon society of New York type person. And during this party, Tom Cruise is swept off by a couple of models, uh, female models, who try and seduce him at the same time. Nicole Kidman is getting seduced by an older Hungarian man. It kind of sets up how Tom Cruise sees himself as attractive to every woman but is completely useless in talking to women (laughs) (laughs) and Nicole Kidman is tempted by this man but holds back because she's married yeah and he's this incredible kind of old world seductive figure it's like you know silver fox he's all like smooth talking her and there's this contrast between her getting you know, seduced by this Mm -hmm. cool European. And then there's Mm -hmm. just like two sexy models are talking to Tom Cruise and it's like, this is the the (laughs) vision of gender roles in this marriage. (laughs) It's wild. And also it's like an interesting look, I think, at both their acting styles, public personas and their characters because Nicole is absolutely going for it and is like drunk, neck in champagne, just being really unhinged. I was obsessed with her in this movie. <laughs> oh my god. It's like... also like they are both 
completely conventionally attractive, but Nicole is so hot in this movie and Tom Cruise is just like nothing. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm obsessed with it. I mean, I will get into my love of Nicole Kidman, I'm sure. My love of unhinged Nicole Kidman specifically, but like, it is hilarious how he's set up to be you know, you see him at this party, like, dressed in a suit, and then, like, later on, he's, like, shirtless and, like, really hunky, obviously, and it's just, like, this man is nothing. This is obviously not matched. Have you seen Nicole's Batman movie? Uh, yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, because when I was yeah. watching this, I was just, like, seeing Moulin Rouge and Nicole's Batman movie prepared me for her going full vamp in a grown-up film. <laughs> Oh my god, absolutely. <laughs> she really goes for it throughout the entire film, which kind of leads on to the kind of next big scene, which is them kind of having out in their bedroom after smoking weed. So they get stoned, they're kind of, she gets, it's kind of implied she gets like a little, smokes a little bit too much weed. And he kind of claims that, they're sort of talking about the party and about how they'd both been seduced. And he claims that women are so different from men because they never think about just giving everything up and having sex. They would never have affairs because women don't operate like men. They don't care about just sex for sex's sake. And then Nicole reveals that she had this complex fantasy about a man that they'd seen when they were on holiday in Cape Cod one year and that she fantasised about him to such an extent that she was willing to give up her entire life and her entire marriage and her child for just one night with this guy, which (laughs) this revelation sets into motion the entire breakdown of Tom Cruise's (laughs) self, life, identity. He goes out into the street to clear his head, meets a sex worker and kind of engages her in sex, but then they kind of get stopped. He gets phoned by Nicole Kidman and then he has to go and see to a patient because he's a doctor. He's got like an elderly patient who's died and he clearly has been in contact with this patient's family for months. So he is like on speaking terms with the patient's hot daughter who kind of resembles Nicole Kidman. There's multiple women in this film who look a little bit like Nicole Kidman, who he has these sort of failed sexual encounters with. But this guy's just died. And as soon as he kind of starts interacting with this grieving daughter, she like immediately comes on to him and is like, I love you. I'm obsessed with you. We need to have sex immediately. (laughs) And he's just like, can't handle this. (laughs) It's so funny. It's just like at every single point, there's quite a lot of interesting theories about the film and about if whether some of it is his dream or his version of events and I'm sort of not sure what I feel about that but I do feel like all of his interactions with women are what he imagines his interactions with women to be and not how they actually are because every single interaction with a woman is whether it be a woman in a diner who's serving him coffee, this daughter of a very recently dead man. <laughs> Every woman that he encounters wants to get off with him. And Alan Cumming. And Alan Cumming, which we will get to, <laughs> uh, wants to get off with him just in quite an aggressive way, which is also a thing that he has claimed isn't true of women. And yet it keeps coming back to him that that's what it is. And But he still doesn't know how to how to interact with any of them and just kind of talks to them and all these women in this very mannered, kind of strange, stilted way. So he kind of has a couple of instances of that when he kind of initially goes out into the night and then kind of another 
big scene which puts the night into motion is he meets Nick Nightingale, played by the great Todd Field. Director of Tar. Go back and listen to our Tar episode because I think we mentioned the origins of Todd Field becoming a director. Is like he started out oh, as yeah. an actor and when he was filming this movie... Tom Cruise with his like weird, creepy psychic powers took one look at Todd Field and was like, you will one day be a great director. And it's like, how do you know? But I guess you're right. (laughs) Sometimes you've got to like see Tom Cruise. He just says stuff in a really certain way and then you have to believe him because you've been hypnotized. That's star power. (laughs) So Todd Field plays Nick Nightingale, who's an old friend of his who plays piano is playing piano at a dive bar downtown and also reveals to him that he plays piano at these kind of secret parties where he has to wear a blindfold. He doesn't know where the location is. He's just driven there. And one time he was playing the piano and he could see beyond the blindfold because they didn't tie it right. And he was like, "You, I've seen a lot of things in this life, but nothing like this and never such women and of course that means that Tom Cruise has to go there because he's on this mission yeah he's got he's he's now fully buckled into the concept of having a rebellious midlife crisis at the age of like probably 29 or something like they're they're married very young with a kid so like clearly they had this child young basically it's a young couple but yeah he like gets the password for this thing but he knows that it's a masked party so he has to like go on this side quest to get himself a tuxedo and a cape and a mask which means he has to wake up this rando costume shop owner in new york which results in another like weird creepy encounter because this guy has a sexy underage implied teenage daughter who also kind of is like blonde and nicole kidman adjacent who is like he shows up and she's having some kind of an encounter with these two adult men and then also is sort of like this seductive figure but it's like the vibes are very weird and it's one of those things where it's like to what extent is this all in Tom Cruise's mind that he thinks he's being seduced by this 15 year old but he gets this outfit and goes to this secluded mansion where he has to give this password which he has taken from Nick Nightingale and he arrives and it is the iconic eyes wide shut sex party and this is the point where it's like okay I'm really getting it now because this party is like it's not (laughs) It's like not cool. It's not it, like they're not they're not doing anything particularly interesting or sexy. It is absolutely your bog standard bunch of rich men, although they're not showing any of the men doing anything. They're all wearing their capes and their masks and stuff to remain anonymous. And then conventionally attractive thin model ladies who were all just nude apart from masks and there's this big sort of ritual dance sequence where i was just like okay so all these girls have to go to a dance studio somewhere and like learn the routine to do the choreography (laughs) to while there's this sort of chant in the background with this master of ceremonies wearing a mask then all these naked women or women in thongs and masks and then he's sort of wandering around this mansion full of these creepy masked people and sees various people having sex but like it's all just these women who are like clearly sex workers they've been hired for this event and then the people having sex with them are men so it's like it's like a basically a straight orgy apart from a couple of characters and there's no kind of sexualization of men so it's all kind of about the male gaze and it's all aggressively conventional and it's not really filmed in a particularly pornographic or lascivious way and it really kind of highlights the norminess of the mm-hmm. <laughs> of the event it had even though mm-hmm. it is playing into this whole 
stereotype and something which I'm sure is absolutely true to life, which is this obsession with secret societies, which is extremely present in like American and European culture. And it's definitely rooted, I'm sure, in the origins of this book, because it's all these kind of European secret societies. But when you hear about like, oh, real life eyes wide shot parties, it's a lot more morally unpleasant in reality because stuff like, you know, sex trafficking or just like a bunch of rich guys exploiting people. But the basic concept is the same, which is that it's secretive because they hold the power of blackmail over people. And he is an interloper who, instead of being properly aristocratic, is just upper middle class and has snuck his way in. And and like, even though the party is not particularly risque, he is so kind of naive and clueless that he is wandering around like really shocked. Like, oh God, what's, what am I doing here? What's happening? And then, of course, he gets caught, which Uh-oh. is very scandalous. And there's this woman who keeps coming up to him, one of the one of the naked women who's warning him, like, your life could be in terrible danger if you don't leave. And eventually he is caught by the Master of Ceremonies and forcibly unmasked in front of all these people, which is this really threatening and ominous scene. And that kind of tips over into the latter half of the film, where he has had this life-changing experience where he's... Once again, not successfully had sex with anyone at any point in this endeavor, <laughs> but he is so paranoid in this half because like he is really unnerved. He's had his whole life shaken both in his marriage and his kind of like experience of life outside of that. And it's tied up in the idea that he is now going to experience some kind of retribution from this secret society. There is something we didn't mention about the initial party at the beginning of the movie where like he is talking to this this client who's one of his patients he gets kind of called up because this woman is overdosed. Clearly, she is also a sex worker. So it's this other, much less glamorous side of the same relationship between like these old rich men commodifying these young women. But yeah, then he kind of starts to retrace his steps while getting increasingly paranoid that he's getting followed and also try and investigate what happened to this woman who overdosed. And he is sort of like positioning himself as a private investigator where he's like using his doctor's ID to try and persuade people that he's like reliable and it's like <laughs> you're a doctor like this means nothing and you think you're a lot cooler than you actually are <laughs> it's so funny how many times he whips that doctor's ID out there's this bit in the in a diner where he's like asking this woman who works at the diner like the server where Nick Nightingale was staying and the whole scene is like he clearly thinks that he's really cool because he's gone into like a slightly crap diner because he wouldn't usually do it. And then he's all like, I'm a doctor. You can disclose the private address of this man that you don't know that I know. It's like, don't worry. I'm Tom Cruise. I'm a doctor. It's very funny. It, and is just like another kind of layer of this, his idea of himself as this very like straightforward, trustworthy person who is actually a bumbling idiot. (laughs) I was so intrigued to learn that Kubrick, when he was kind of thinking about this in earlier decades, initially wanted to cast a comedy actor and Steve Martin and Woody Allen were two of the names he came up with. Oh my god. (laughs) And it's it's like you can really see it because this film is funny and there's this great article I'll link to in the show notes by Matt Zoller sites at the Roger Ebert site where he kind of talks about how the joke is basically on Tom Cruise in this movie and it's always very unclear to what extent Tom Cruise's performance is completely self-aware because he's literally and figuratively cucked throughout this movie, you know? Yes. And it's playing on his image because he is this really handsome guy and we're used to seeing him playing leading man roles. And this is his pre-action era, obviously. Like, soon after this, he started doing much more kind of conservative, restrictive roles. But before this, he was doing these high-energy, 
dramas and comedies and often playing quite sexy characters. But in this, he really is pathetic. And you can kind of see how that might have been a comedy film at some earlier iteration of the draft instead of being this more kind of noir, erotic thriller kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it feels to me like I can definitely see the way that this would have fit into different kinds of genres and the way that it also fits in really interestingly with the kind of erotic thriller trend in the 80s and 90s which this is kind of coming at the tail end of and it is quite an interesting like punchline almost to that trend which is that it isn't sexy yes (laughs) nobody really has sex apart from like in a dream sequence that kind of keeps coming up that's Nicole Kidman having sex with this guy that she fantasizes about and then at this sex party which again People aren't really having sex in, like, interesting ways. I think an especially telling moment of that is that one of the rooms that he walks through, there's a group of women who are sort of having sex in inverted commas. But it's like the idea of what men think that lesbians get up to, which is just they're, like, kind of wafting their faces next to each other. It was also, like, when he first walks in, I was, like, initially kind of puzzled because I thought they were... Like, it's one of them is, like, giving someone else oral. And I'm like, oh, but they're they're wearing masks so like it's clearly completely simulated right then I was like oh right this is a performance for everyone else Uh in the room and it's like a really false performance because I was just like this is like less less real than like just seeing a stripper like what was it right (laughs) they're kind of touching each other but they're not even really touching each other's boobs or anything it's like so rubbish if that is like the sexy kind of center of the film it's not sexy at all it's weird and but not weird in like a hot titillating like scandalous way it's just like what is this and it's quite interesting to think of that as the kind of tail end of this erotic thriller genre nobody in it is cool even Nicole who is a hero and an icon she is kind of like done up quite mumsy throughout the whole thing as well like She's kind of wearing wireframe glasses and she's like at home looking after this kid while he's gallivanting off. And even the kind of women who are like the kind of sex workers and these women at this party who are also kind of implied to be sex workers, they're just kind of like archetypes. They're all, they all look like the same woman. So it's like everything in it is really yeah. sexless. And it kind of like strips away all of the sex and celebrity and ideas of people being charismatic and anything like that scrapes that off. And underneath it is this like hollow, yeah, nothing. With the kind of the late 80s, early 90s erotic thrillers, like I've not seen a great many of them, but I think we've discussed a couple on the pod before, partly linked to Deep Water, if I recall correctly. (laughs) But um, sort of the driving force of a lot of those is infidelity and just having this like unquenchable desire for something and just completely destroying your life in some way because you're desperate for sex, which is this very kind of obvious AIDS epidemic era motivation for like this reawakening of 
noir romantic narratives but in this movie like the two big expressions of desire we see are both coming from Nicole Kidman and they're in the opening party scene she is clearly really into this seductive older Hungarian guy and like you say in like this really comical way that's just like so delightful because she's really overacting it in such a fun way and then obviously when she goes in this really big monologue to her husband where she's just incredibly pissed off at him to an exaggerated degree because she's high and she's talking about this fantasy she had and it's completely obvious that he has never considered the concept of women having an inner life or sexual fantasies in any meaningful way and then he isn't actually desirous of any of the women that he's really encountering after that. So it's sort of a reverse of the normal erotic thriller thing where the audience is caught up in a character's self-destructive desire. And it's like he is experiencing it all at a remove because like he kind of wants to have a cool desire to to defeat his wife because like she has it. and he. But it's like you don't know how to have an affair. Like you're not lustful <laughs> enough. Like you don't have a fully formed sort of sexual identity basically because he's trapped in this yeah. really middle-of-the-road married straight guy persona. Uh-huh. And even feels like everything to him is almost like a transaction or like going through the motions. Like his investigations with his <laughs> doctor's badge is like the same as him picking up a sex worker. It is like, oh, I should be doing this. Or like, wouldn't it be crazy if I did this? When it's like probably a lot of upper middle class guys in long term straight marriages have engaged a sex worker <laughs> for yeah it, it it is fascinating about how along the way he also all of these women that he does come into contact with he's also getting surprised by their inner lives or the complications of their lives like he is his wife that's another reason why he he kind of fails to have a sexual interaction with any of them is cuz like their real lives or like their feelings kind of get in the way so he can't have this fantasy. Even the the woman who kind of stands up for him at the at the party and is like, take me instead, and then he finds out that, that she's died later on and he gets it into his head that well, it's kind of implied that it's the same woman as the one yeah, who over there's this kind of, um, I think we're kind of entering the spoiler zone. I mean, if you can even say that for yeah. this film. But yeah, there's um, <laughs> there's these two women who are sort of conflated in the film, but it's really unclear if they're the same person because there's two different actors involved. So in the opening scene, there's this woman who overdoses at this Christmas party and then the rich patient of Tom Cruise calls him up to kind of have a look at this woman who is you know, clearly been having sex with this guy and is naked and needing medical attention. And then near the end of the film, Tom Cruise's character sees a newspaper headline saying that this woman has died of an overdose and he goes to visit her body in the morgue. But in the middle, there's this orgy scene where another woman who is a sex worker is the person who kind of supposedly rescues him from retribution at this party. And like, the woman who overdoses, Mandy, is credited as being played by this actress named Julianne Davis. And then the mysterious woman who wears a mask at the sex party is credited to being played by Abigail Good and then may have been voiced by Kate Blanchett. Yeah, There's like yeah. a lot of stuff going on here, <laughs> but both he and we are not really meant to know if these two women are the same person. Mm-hmm. But he kind of engineers this story in his head about how this woman actually it was a cover-up and how she was actually, she died for him and it was her and, and you know, all these people kind of took her away and and that's how she met her end and he engineers this story and it's later on he 
meets Sidney Pollock again and Sidney Pollock admits that he was part of this orgy, not somebody who organised it, but that he was there and is like, you're getting me into a lot of trouble, blah, blah, blah. But when Tom Cruise brings up this woman, he's like, oh, she was a junkie. She overdosed. And it's like, we don't know what's true, but we know what Tom Cruise's character would like to be true. And it's that this nice story in his head about this like tragic woman who's died to save him. You can genuinely interpret that whole sequence of events in so many different ways to be like, maybe she was killed by this shadowy cabal or whatever. But like my personal instinct based on my biases about like the way real secret societies function and that sort of thing is basically a lot of it is theatricality and as soon as you get this scene at the end with Sidney Pollack giving this very kind of Occam's razor explanation for all of his experiences being like we're just trying to scare you like there's no real threat here we just want to intimidate (laughs) you you're in over your head you know we don't want some idiot coming in to our secret sex party because we're full of politicians and don't want to be blackmailed (laughs) And like just seeing that really kind of confirmed to me something I was thinking when that initial orgy scene is happening, which is that all of the conversations that he has with this mysterious masked woman are worded in a really silly way. Like she is talking in this slightly stilted way that makes it seem like the actress is a bad actress, but it may be that the character is a bad actress because she is Mm -hmm. literally someone who's been hired to go to this party and not wear any clothes and like get fucked by a bunch of old guys. And Mm -hmm. she's having to go up to this person to be like, you're in serious danger. You need to leave at once. Like she's, you know, sort of like an NPC in like, you know, video game. And it's like, well, that's, no one else in the movie is really talking like that. Everyone else is talking like pretty normal people. Uh So it really does reiterate the likelihood that Sidney Pollock's character is correct. And Tom Cruise is just like fumbling around and considering everything to be far more dramatic and perilous than it is. Yeah, absolutely. And her stilted delivery and the NPC (laughs) characteristics of like her voice are a flip of the master of ceremonies and the people who are working at the door who he gives the the password to which are also like very the password sir and like you must now remove your mask you must now remove your clothes very kind of reading from a script and acting out this kind of like fantasy of having control over this situation and playing the kind of it's it's kind of like laughing <laughs> there is this like grand tradition you know it's all playing with the venetian carnival mask thing which you know historically was a way for people especially women to have more freedom to you know have sex but also just like have freedom in society you would get to wear a mask both during carnival and in general like you can look up some amazing pictures of like have you seen those masks where it's like you put it in your mouth it's so it's this absolutely fascinating mask where women would wear them to go out in public where it's like if you were like an upper class woman there were loads of places where you could not go unaccompanied and it's just sort of this white featureless oval that covers your whole face but you keep it on your face by holding a little tag in your mouth so you can't say anything while you're wearing it but it's always keeping your identity quiet. And it's this really kind of eerie image. But obviously Venetian carnival masks are like more decorative and have this long history of sort of licentious behavior. And it's clear that these New York socialites are clearly very into it. And the password is Fidelio as a reference to the opera. And it's just like, you fucking corny old. I love it. It's great. It's fantastic (laughs) stuff. I also love the detail of when Todd Field's character, Nick Nightingale, is playing keyboard in the background of this big ritualized performance. He's not 
playing piano music because they have yes. this amazing kind of music, which that. is this chant and all the. And I'm like, so so he's in there playing a synth, like he is playing the synth to make sure it's, it's the correct so tone corny. of magical. I loved it. It was fantastic. <laughs> it's so great because the the soundtrack totally bangs. Like not just the that section with that music that sounds like a kind of a bit like a toddler walking over some synths and, and then this kind of like this repeating kind of motif that composed is kind by of a bit like- Jocelyn Pook who was personally oh. recruited by Stanley Kubrick she also went on to do uh, other things like The Merchant of Venice and The Wife but she was someone who had classical training but was doing a lot of kind of experimental stuff so like she has worked with Massive Attack and Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Very cool person. There's like an interview with her that I can link to in the show notes. But basically, Stanley Kubrick was like, you seem cool. Why don't you make the music for this? And she was like, what? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> and then did it. And of course, it was <laughs> tremendous. But, you know, yeah. I think this was kind of when she was far less prominent in her career at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a really like, I hate to use the term iconic, but it is a very like iconic theme The the phrase that's like repeated throughout this party and then subsequently which like haunts Tom Cruise and kind of is another bit of theatricality that kind of follows him around but does genuinely scare him because he doesn't quite understand the levels of theatricality that are around it it's almost like the Jaws theme a little bit you know because it like changes in pitch and stuff but it is it is really funny that like you say Todd Field is playing this on a synth and he might as well not be there. They might as well just be playing a recording, but the the image of a guy in the corner looking away with a blindfold on is like obviously delicious yes. to these people. <laughs> and also like if you watch that with no sound on and you strip that away, then the ridiculousness of it just comes to light because I mean it's like a hammer it horror thing silly. like all these We've watched a lot of stupid horror films from the 70s. It's very uh-huh. much in that vein. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Another thing uh, that's interesting about the sort of central orgy scene is that the kind of master of ceremonies who's wearing the red cloak is played by Leon Vitali, who is, I think, one of the most interesting figures in 20th century filmmaking and there's nobody quite like him in 20th century filmmaking. So he started as an actor. He's a British guy. He was in um, Barry Lyndon, um, playing a sort of secondary character. And he met Stanley Kubrick on that film and just instantly kind of became fascinated by him as a person. And also he kind of had interest in making films as well. So he asked... Stanley Kubrick if he could stay on unpaid to kind of assist him really and he just kept doing that for the rest of his life he was Stanley Kubrick's right hand man I think he's credited as a casting director on this film and on Full Metal Jacket as well but he never really had a set role he kind of did everything there's a really fascinating film about him called Film Worker that I really recommend And it just talks about how he used to do everything on this film. So he would like help scout for locations. He would help divvy up roles for other people. He would be the person that Stanley Kubrick phoned at three in the morning or, you know, last thing at night. And 
get his opinion. Obviously, his personal life immensely suffered because of this. <laughs> and there's interviews in the film about him, there's interviews with his children and stuff. But he basically gave up his whole life to serve the art of Stanley Kubrick. And there's nobody like him. I mean, it's completely fascinating because like, I hadn't heard of him until he died. And then there were all these obituaries and people recommending mm-hmm. this documentary, which I will definitely watch. But I need to see Barry Lyndon first because I've not seen Barry Lyndon. Yes. <laughs> but like, it really is an even more extreme example of the way that you often hear people talk about the wives of great artists. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, so yeah, you're yeah. doing this without even being someone's wife, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And he, in a similar way, was kind of like unsung yeah. until I think that film came out, which was about 2017. But still is really, I think because he didn't have a specific role and he kind of had no money either, even though he kind of worked on these films to such an extent. After Stanley Kubrick died, he supervised all of the like remastering and all the reprints because he knew exactly how everything should look and should sound and nobody else could do that because he was the closest to Stanley Kubrick that anybody was. It's really interesting how he comes up in his filmography and I think it's really fitting that he's in Stanley Kubrick's last film as this really prominent central character who's also masked, you don't see him. There's kind of pictures, behind the scenes pictures of him like wearing these big shoes I think to make him look taller. So he's kind of like masked in that way from the audience knowing who he is and what his role was and there's also a really nice little bit where Tom Cruise is reading a paper and it says something like fashion designer Leon Vitale and it's just like for two seconds but it's like that's also like quite a nice little tribute that like you wouldn't have seen usually but yeah he's an absolutely fascinating person and would entirely recommend you look into him watch Barry Lyndon first though because it is amazing (laughs) I definitely will I keep meaning to (laughs) having seen several (laughs) Kubricks obviously yeah so I mean I think basically we've covered the sort of general thrust of this movie and we should talk about the very ending and also kind of how it was received I mean we've got very close to the end there's obviously he has this big conversation with Sidney Pollock's character where he's informed that he's been very naive about his experiences but then he obviously goes home and speaks to his wife so like he kind of comes home he sees that his wife is still sleeping so essentially the whole time he's been going through this protracted sexual breakdown his wife has been living at home having a very boring wife life (laughs) because like basically even though when she's first introduced in the very first scene she's obviously kind of very sexy looking and stuff we also learn that she doesn't currently have a job she used to be the manager curator of an art gallery but at the moment she's unemployed and looking after their daughter together in this like very lovely and lived in wealthy apartment while he's a full-time doctor. So she is this sort of like quintessential frustrated housewife and her big sexual fantasy monologue is her kind of expressing something which is very frustrated in her personal life. And then his response is to go massively overboard and then like go to fucking orgy and all this other stuff. And he comes home and confesses to to all of her like off camera and then it just like it cuts to just a shot of Nicole Kidman clearly having cried extensively. And then the final scene is they know they have to go shopping with their child for Christmas presents. So they're walking around, you know, this New York department store while their kid looks for teddy bears and stuff. 
And they have this conversation where he's like, what do we do next? Like, I don't understand. And she essentially is like, kind of forgives him or at least lets him off the hook and is like, well, you know, we're really lucky to be in this relationship. We're blessed. And then the final exchange of the movie is so incredible because she's like, but first we have something really important we need to do. And he's like, what? And she says, fuck. And then that's the end of the film. (laughs) So like the final shot of the final Stanley Kubrick film is Nicole Kidman saying fuck which is as it should it's be. absolutely masterful it's incredible but yeah it's like they end up in this like very prosaic solution to essentially an infidelity and it's an infidelity that's happened because he can't handle the concept of his wife having sexual desires when all she actually said was like she went on a bit of a bender and like said that she was fantasizing about someone and it's just like wow incredible you really there's a lot going on here <laughs> <laughs> so much going on so much going on it's also really funny um the final scene in the toy shop is actually filmed in hamleys it's like very recognizable. the word that was coming to mind was hamleys so i was like well it can't be hamleys because that's new york but it has a hamleys vibe (laughs) yeah well it is actually in hamleys because famously stanley kubrick didn't like to fly he's american but didn't like to leave the uk So everything was filmed in London apart from some kind of establishing shots that were done by a second unit. So as well as filming in places such as Hamleys, he also recreated an entire New York block in Pinewood Studios. Adds a really interesting texture to the film, which is to this dreamlike state of the film, which is it kind of looks like New York, but you know that there's something of it off about and there's it. also it's all of the strange. shop signs and stuff you see in the background because you keep seeing yeah. background shop signs that are just like kind of sexual names <laughs> so it's uh-huh, like they're kind of uh-huh. haunting haunting tom cruise's subconscious basically it's always like oh it's like the lace store and then <laughs> it's like um you know the bit in kath and kim i was literally thinking i was literally <laughs> thinking of the kath and kim skit where like she's like surrounded by like lesbian gay gay queer like <laughs> honestly but yeah when this movie came out as you said mixed reactions it wasn't like a flop it was it was the top release of that week although it wasn't like an overwhelming commercial success it definitely is kind of indicative of the period that this movie had a box office of like 162 million dollars but it had a cinema score rating of d minus which is atrocious any film that is well received basically gets a b plus or above but d minus means that it's extremely divisive and a lot of people went and were like what the fuck and i get the impression that part of the problem is that a lot of people went to this being like i want to go and see these two hot famous actors in an erotic thriller and what they got was like a nearly three hour long stanley kubrick movie where no one has sex the advertising for it is really interesting as well because it didn't have a tagline the tagline is just Cruz Kidman Kubrick and all of the posters when I went to the uh, Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the design museum a few years ago they had all the like original like eyes wide shut promotional material and all of them it is just like that famous photo of their faces almost touching with just the title of the film and their three last names i imagine that a lot of that says a lot with very little (laughs) but it's also entirely misleading (laughs) the image of them like almost kissing on the on the cover of the kind of dvd cover and the posters and stuff like that is from a very short scene which is just before they have this argument and then blows Tom Cruise's entire life up. So it's a really interesting bit of 
promo and a very misleading one and interesting because obviously like Kubrick's there's a lot of kind of design elements to Kubrick's work and he was always like very kind of involved in the way that his films were promoted and the material that was produced and I would be interested to know how much he was involved in that before he died but like in the kind of identity of the yeah film, that's a really good know? point because like I did get the impression they were obviously intentionally <laughs> mysterious about stuff but like without yeah. him being present obviously they have to find ways to market this and it's like you do occasionally get situations where a studio has decided that the best method is a bait and switch but the result yeah. of that is that you get a lot of people at an opening weekend and then a lot of people are pissed off because it's not the film they were yeah. expecting <laughs> Totally. (laughs) And it kind of continued to have this reputation of a very kind of mixed bag. And that only then started to change and it started to be a bit reclaimed after after it was out on home video for a while. And after kind of when people do the traditional like anniversary reclaiming of a slightly maligned product. And it's now settling into its position in the Kubrick filmography as not quite as iconic as something like Full Metal Jacket or Clockwork Orange or whatever, but it's got its place there and it's got definite fans and definite fans amongst kind of the critical class, I think. Yeah. And now I've seen it once and you've seen it 20 times. (laughs) So we've covered. (laughs) Genuinely. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. So I think that kind of wraps us up for this episode. Yeah. Can I just tell one more thing? One of my kind of most resounding eyes wide shut memories is when I went to see the Design Museum exhibit, the Stanley Kubrick one. It was absolutely brilliant. It had loads of stuff and it was chronological. So eyes wide shut was at the end and the eyes wide shut bit was really small and I was really annoyed (laughs) because it's my favourite one. And I pushed a man out of the way so that I could see the Fidelio (laughs) The like little napkin that he wrote for Daniel. <laughs> and it was like almost like something took up. It was much like how Tom Cruise is possessed by a singular <laughs> drive. I was possessed by a similar singular drive to to witness uh, that napkin up close. Happens to us And I was all. very glad that I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can find us as always over invested on patreon at overinvested podcast where we have many episodes already there with morgan and you can kind of support us there you can find us on twitter at overinvested pod you can find us on tumblr at overinvested you can find us on instagram at overinvested pod also obviously merch on our website and from now on the schedule is going to be once every two weeks we are returning to a regular schedule so it'll be alternating between episodes with wonderful claire biddles um, with us today and stefan allen the comedian who recently discussed jurassic park with us um, and we'll next be doing The Exorcist I believe what you and I will be doing next is Bones and All yes I yes so, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see these these as double bills like <laughs> Jurassic Park and Eyes Wide Shut The Exorcist and Bones and All might actually work a bit I better I mean I will I, I am yet to see Bones and All I missed it last year because <laughs> it came out precisely the same week as I had Covid and I was like god damn it oh, because man. obviously one loves Timothy Chalamet one loves Luca Guadagnino one loves cannibalism yeah. so I'm psyched to watch this <laughs> I'm excited Claire is a Timothy Chalamet scholar so um, thank you for identifying <laughs> that Gav so I think you <laughs> will have I a am. lot to add on that one <laughs>
Yeah. So do you have like a website, social media you would like to tell listeners to go to, to advertise yourself? Yep. I'm just at uh, Ms. Claire Biddles on Twitter. You can find out how to spell my name in the show title or notes, I imagine. But yeah, I'm just on Twitter over there talking a lot about Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah, so as always you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor on tumblr and letterboxd at hello taylor um and as i say all of the kind of contact stuff for over invested is on our website you can kind of contact us there if you have questions about the new schedule and on patreon obviously so yeah hope you all enjoyed eyes wide shut thanks for sticking <laughs> with us and we will see you soon Bye bye